Maybe one of the best ways that we can honor the idea of Mother's Day is to remember that there are children all around the world who either don't have parents or they live in, in such incredible poverty that uh, raising a child is super difficult. And every year, this time of year, we, we highlight the, the Minister of Compassion International and invite you in to sponsor child sponsorship. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, for less than a cup of coffee a day, way less really than most of the coffee we would buy uh, a day, uh, you can really impact the life of a child uh, in a community where they are supporting families, connecting children to local churches, caring for the educational and the health needs and, and uh, the day-to-day needs of these children um, and, and showing them Jesus. And so if you are a sponsored child, hooray, great job. We want to honor you for that. But if you don't, if you and your family don't do that, uh, we have a table set up right outside the door on the way out that you can stop. You can look at families there, look at children there, um, and choose to sponsor a child. It's really a beautiful thing. Our family gets uh, a letter in the mail about every other month from our child that we sponsor, and uh, we get to write back and send special gifts and things like that. And uh, it's just a great way. And what a, like on Mother's Day, a good reminder that, that as we honor our own moms, we, we can make a difference in the life of a child. So just a challenge to do that this morning on your way out uh, and uh, uh, consider and prayerfully consider being part of that. Um, I'm, I'm so pathetic. I, I try. I really do. Like, I, I got after the first of the year and did the whole, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm going to, and, 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 and I did pretty good, okay? I'm going to be honest. I, those of you who haven't noticed, I'm a little bitter, to be honest with you, but I actually have lost 30 pounds since, since January 1st. Don't cheer for me. I suck. I'm terrible. Because I am so plateaued. And the reason is because, like, I told myself stuff like, you know, this yogurt is every bit as good as ice cream. It's It's a lie. I have no self-control. Like I so like I wake up every morning going, all right, today's the day. And and I do okay with like the exercise. I like that. But my my children are making my chocolate chip cookies all the time. And if they're in the house, there's no hope. Somebody in our community group showed up with ding-dongs. Who knew they even made these anymore? And I was like, nope. It lasted eight seconds, okay, just so you know. Then I was stuffing packages in pockets and ice creams around. There is no hope. Now, now you know, especially like ice cream for real for, for me is like the downfall. Like I, I, I love a good ice cream, good, good chocolate peanut butter. Or vanilla. It doesn't matter. If it's ice cream, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And, and, and so some of y'all are out there skinny people and you're judging me. And uh, you have your own issues. And the truth of the matter is right now you're listening to me going, not my problem. And you're feeling better than me? And, and let me just remind you that the, the, the darkest, deepest sin is pride, and you need to repent right now of that, okay? Um, temptation comes my way, and there are certain things that, that are no big deal to me. Not, like, the, that temptation doesn't get me. There are other temptations where I'm like, willpower, strength, I can do this. And I don't. I, I fail all the time. I am... Uh, constantly reminded that um, if I'm left to my own willpower, my own strength, there isn't a lot of hope for me. And the truth of the matter is there isn't a lot for you. 
James, in James chapter 1, uh, we're told that um, uh, the, the illustration that is used in the passage in James chapter 1, 14, is that temptation is kind of like uh, a fishing. I remember like going fishing and, you, you know, especially when you like take your kids fishing and you put a worm on the hook, you know, and you got a bobber and you throw it out there and you just see that it'll hit the water and all of a sudden you'll see that bobber just kind of dancing, 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 and they're just tapping at it, tapping at it. And next thing you know, bloom, the, 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 the bobber goes down, you tell your kid to pull up and that fish is now, you know, dinner, right? And, and the, the author of James, the brother, uh, half-brother of Jesus, literally says in this moment, he says, uh, we are tempted when we are dragged away and enticed by our evil desires. He uses a picture word of nibbling at a bait, and, and eventually we'll bite into that and not realize that we've taken the hook and it's in our mouths, and by then we're, it's too late. It's too late to go, I can't do this. I'm, I'm stopping. You know, you're, you're hooked and you're in. And uh, that becomes just part of our existence that we're constantly nibbling at things that we think we can overcome where the voice of God is just lovingly saying, it's not the best for you. It's not good for you. I have something better. Um, but our universal hu- human experience is, is our struggle. And, and so we start saying things like, well, nobody's perfect. Come on, we've all said it, right? Everybody makes mistakes. To err is human. Because in our experience, the truth of the matter is those are true statements. That that the universal human experience is that we blow it, we sin, we make mistakes, uh, and and, and that we fail. And and, and so then we start, you know, kind of rationalize. We want to say, I'm basically a good person. There was a commercial that that ran for a while uh, where this... Uh, on the radio here in St. Louis where this lady with a really bad Italian accent will go, I'm a good person. Did, did y'all hear this? I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. And I heard that the first time. I'm like, that's now the baseline of being a good person? You paid your taxes? Woo! Yes! That's what it means to be a good person now. Like, we have just taken the bar of what it means to be good and lowered it so far that you know, pretty much anybody could just step over that bar and go, you know, I'm a good person. But uh, being good, like in our own eyes, is always comparative. We think we're okay uh, because, uh, we, you know, everybody fails, everybody makes mistakes, and I've always got somebody I can compare myself to. We're in this series here at Genesis. If you're visiting with us this morning, if this is your first time or first time back for a while, we are doing a series right now that is literally looking at the great truths the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus, the, the glorious truths about who he was. And we've already heard things like the God, that Jesus was, is fully God. He is our true and living God, but he put on humanity, took on flesh. And so he was, he's truly God, truly human, that he died on the cross for our sins. We, over the last three weeks, we talked about the, these amazing offices that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, our king, and that these teach us something about, about God's story, our story, and how Jesus is the center of it. And this morning, we're looking at the beautiful truth that Jesus is the perfect, sinless, righteous person who became the picture of authentic humanity as designed by God. See, when we say nobody's perfect, to err is human, everybody sins, that actually is not a completely true statement. There is one who didn't sin. There is one who is perfect. There is one who is righteous. And it is a super important truth 
we don't get to, like, the, the idea of Jesus' perfection, his, his sinlessness and righteousness, is not so that we can sit here and go, Jesus is standing in front of us going, I'm better than you, I'm, I'm the one. Like, that's not the idea. Something is deeply true in the fact that we see the glory of Jesus in his righteous perfection. That, that he's worthy of our worship. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, all right, I get that. I, I believe that. Sadly, a recent study performed by the Barna Institute asking people who are going to church like you and me, in churches like ours, people who would, who would identify themselves as born-again Christians, evangelical, like the, the tribe that we kind of affiliate with or the larger idea of Christianity we identify this American Worldview Inventory survey conducted by George Barna and the Cultural Research Center revealed that there was a 14-point decline among this, this group of Christians who think that Jesus lived a sinless life during his time on earth, dropping from 58% three years ago to 44% this year. In other words, only 44% of us are affirming the glorious sinlessness of Jesus. Now, is it a big deal? It's massive. If the sinless righteousness of Jesus is gone, I'm telling you, there is no hope for you. And it is something that we need to look at. We need to see that what's going on in the biblical story is that Jesus steps into the world. Like his story is so beautiful because it's prophesied and promised for ages past. And then here comes Jesus born in this simple manger uh, with, to a virgin mom, which is kind of part of this, this story that Jesus really was born to a virgin mom. And then he grows up as a normal Jewish Galilean peasant living in the city called Nazareth, which was just a little bitty redneck town north of the Sea of Galilee. He grew up in the home of a carpenter where his dad, his, his, his earthly dad, we know that his true father was God, but uh, his earthly dad was a carpenter. And, and he grew up learning the trade, going to school, doing life. And we don't know a whole lot about the story, except the story keeps telling us that that he was obedient to his parents, and that he lived perfectly, like he perfectly fulfilled the will of God at every point. And, but he learned the trade. He took on carpentry and started building stuff, uh, started working with his hands, became a man who, who did all these things. At the age of 30 then, or around the age of 30, he's baptized in the Jordan River. And it's an, an interesting moment where he looks at John the Baptist and says, I need you to baptize me. And John the baptizer says, I think you got this upside down. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says this really interesting phrase. He says, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. What he's saying was that there is a purpose that is outside of him from his father. And he has to do everything that is part of that purpose. He's going to fulfill the plan. He then is immediately taken to the desert where he's tempted. We're going to come back to this just in a moment. But the temptation is a snapshot of something that happens for the next three years. Jesus has been publicly declared. And from this point until he breathes his last moment, Satan is coming at him full bore. The temptation of Jesus, like my temptation, I last just a second. But here's Jesus, and he is tempted with everything Satan is coming at him, with every temptation. And it's not just like 
soft around the edges, just a little push. He is coming at him every moment of the rest of his life with everything he can to destroy the perfect glory of Jesus. If Christ fails, there is no hope, and God's character is destroyed. There is an enemy that wants to do that to God and to you. And Jesus goes into the ring of battle, and he takes every blow. And he does it with glorious, glorious righteousness, sinlessness. He does not fail. And, and we'll see in a minute how that story even goes to his last days. But, but it begins, like, this, the, the focus of that begins with the story of Jesus and his temptation. So if you have a Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Grab a, grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible in your rows, there's Bibles there. We would love for you to read along with us in this Bible and, and, and pay attention in this. Uh, we would love for you to, to interact with the Scriptures this morning as we read them. Um, as we're doing this series, I'm preaching, we're preaching more what's called doctrinal sermons so what we're doing is we're going to texts that show us the true doctrine, but I'm not like trying to go word for word, line for line, show you every nuance. But the big idea in the text here is that Jesus was authentically tempted, and just like we are, Hebrews actually says that, that the text John preached two weeks ago, that he, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He's tempted here, but the temptation is intense, and yet Jesus responds revealing who he is and his righteousness, okay? And so Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do, do you see that? Now, a couple things here. First of all, it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes on the day of Pentecost and Acts, who fills the life of the believer, who leads Jesus into temptation. We just looked at a prayer where the prayer was, lead us not into temptation. Jesus said, pray this way, lead us not into temptation. Yet for Jesus, it's the Spirit who leads him to this moment. And now he is face to face with Satan in the wilderness. The story of, of the Bible begins, this big, beautiful arc this massive narrative that tells us about God, the world, ourselves. It begins with these two people, Adam and Eve. They too are tempted. But their temptation comes in a garden. A beautiful place where there is everything they need. All of their God has given them everything they desire. He told them, listen, you can eat from every tree, every fruit, enjoy it all except one. They have every, like they're in a garden with everything they need. But we're told here, Jesus' temptation is in the wilderness. It's in a place where it's desolate, lonely, nobody's there. It's scrub brush and, and dirt and nothing out there. He's in the wilderness and he has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve's temptation came in a garden. And the, the whole story of the Bible is this. We can look at Adam and Eve and, and, and feel arrogant, feel like, well, I'm better than them. I wouldn't have done it. Yes, you would. You know how I know you would have done the same thing Adam and Eve did? Because from your garden in fullness, you make the same decision they make every single day. Amen? Amen. Most of you are like, nah, I ain't confessing that this morning. And here's Jesus in the wilderness being tempted head on by Satan. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and <clears throat> set up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. All right, what's going on? Well, here's Jesus and Satan is literally coming at him with everything he's got. And he basically throws three temptations. I'm not gonna go deep into all the, the, the meanings of these temptations, but first it's turn a, turn a stone into bread or turn a stone into a bowl of ice cream. I'm toast right there, right? Just, you are hungry, satisfy your need. You're, you're the son of God, you can do this. Second temptation is literally looking, looking at Jesus and saying, listen, you can make, your, like, if you jump off the temple and you go all Iron Man, like, everybody looks at you and you jump, and then they think off the corner of this high place, it's called Solomon's Colonnade in the temple, very public place where they're at. If he goes airborne and then angels catch him and he's just flying around, everybody's gonna be like, there's the dude, right? We're going to follow this guy. You can set up everything you want right now. Just take control of your destiny. Do it your way. And the third is the promise of all the kingdoms of the world. If you will just worship me, I will give them to, the, to you. And here's the point of this, that, that he is coming at Jesus with the same basic temptations that, that he comes at us, but it's on a way different level. Because he's come to the one who can fulfill his own destiny, who can turn stones into bread, to the one who is the king of all kingdoms. But the way to that kingdom is through a cross, not through some other means. And the point of this story is that Jesus' response in each place is revealing who he is and what he's doing. He, he responds First of all, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy. Now, it would be an interesting test this morning to see how many people in our congregation, if we brought you up to this microphone and said, just quote a verse from Deuteronomy, how many of y'all can pull it off, okay? Like most of us would be like, uh, Deuteronomy. Um, but Jesus is quoting from this, this ancient text. But Deuteronomy is so important in the Bible because Deuteronomy is written after the Israelites in the Old Testament have failed miserably in their relationship with God and wandered for 40 years. And now God is calling them back to himself saying, let's try this again. You messed it up the first time. From, from the time I gave you the Ten Commandments, from the time I gave you the law, you messed it up the first time. What are we doing now? And he calls them back to the, himself. And what happens is that they come back and they go, we will honor you. And as they walk away, they do the same thing. And his quotes from Deuteronomy are showing us something that where Israel failed, he will not. Where you and I failed, Jesus is not going to mess it up. It means something. He is becoming, here's a big theological idea, he's becoming true Israel. 
He is becoming everything Israel, this Old Testament people were supposed to be, are now fully embodied in Jesus, keeping the law and living a righteous life. Now, there's a couple of ways that I can avoid sin. I can go be a monk. I can live as a hermit. I can go crawl up in, in, in some bell tower and live in a corner and not do anything. And maybe I can avoid certain aspects of sin. But the truth of the matter is in my humanity, I will go up there, I will get proud, I will feel arrogant, or I will, my own thoughts will turn in. Like there are all kinds of ways that even that, I may avoid the traps of the visible sin that religious people like to push in on, but my sinfulness will come out. But the, the life of Jesus is not the life of a monk where he goes and hides himself so nothing touches him. He is intensely, deeply relational. He grows up with a family. He grows up with friends. He, he uh, calls people to himself. He is utterly failed by his closest, in the closest relationships. He has all kinds of situations where every possible temptation is presented to him. Uh, whether it's, it's wine, women, or song. And at every point, Jesus keeps the, the law and honors God. And this, the story of Jesus' temptation is designed to show us this in this moment, but it launches this battle royale that is going on as Satan is trying to defeat Jesus. And the easiest way to defeat the plan of God is just to get Jesus at one point, at any single moment, for Jesus to say, you know, on this day, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm gonna do what I want. And he never does it. His perfection is all through the story and we're supposed to see it and be in awe. But the awe is not so that we can go, well, I can never be that. To err is human, except him. What do I do with that? Well, it's, it, something is going on in the life of Jesus, his sinless perfection, and Peter is going to help explain this. So got a second text. Grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 21 through 25. And, and from this text, I'm going to show you a few things about how Peter, Peter is going to interpret for us what is told to us in story in the temptation of Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Here's what it says. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in treating himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's what Peter is, is trying to help us see. He, He's alluding to what started the temptation of Jesus, but he's taking that story to the end where he, Jesus is abandoned, he is reviled, he is beaten up, he is, he is whipped and scourged by Roman soldiers who say cruel, cruel things to him. He is left by his closest friends. He is alone and hurting, and at every point, you and I would have been cussing people out. We would have mad as heck. We would have been, just gone nuts we would have fought for our own rights. And at every point of this, Jesus submits himself to what is going on because he knows that his, his law-honoring, sinless response is doing something for the very people who are calling him out, who have left him, who are hurting him, who are abandoning him, who are whipping him, who are reviling him. And so 
You and I would have reviled. Jesus doesn't. You and I would have pushed back. Jesus doesn't. You and I, if we had the right to call 10,000 angels to get the heck out of there, we would have done it. And Jesus could have, and he doesn't. And we see in this the beauty of Christ's righteousness and perfection. Here's what Peter's trying to say to us. Because of that, there are a few things that happen for you and me when we follow Jesus that are because Jesus was sinless. If, if, if he committed deceit, if he, you know, look at what it says again. It says, verse 22, he committed no sin. If he committed sin, nothing here is true. He, uh, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Like, all this story had Jesus at one point turned this way instead of that way. What Peter is trying to tell us about our redemption and salvation is no longer true. And here's the two things that happen. He, he basically is saying this, and I'll come back to this in a minute. He basically is saying that because Jesus was sinless, what happens for you and me is that we can be forgiven and we, be, we can become overcomers of our sin. But it's because of the sinlessness of Jesus that we get there. This doctrine matters. It matters that we understand who Jesus was and what he did for us. And so this morning, that's this kind of want to spend a few minutes talking to you about. I just want to share with you some implications, some things that Jesus' righteous sinlessness means for us. Three things that, that this great doctrine means for you and me this morning. Every one of us in here, there is something in this great doctrine that we need to hear and, it, and, and some meaning in this. And the first thing is this. The first thing I want you to understand that this doctrine, the, the, the sinlessness of Jesus is this, that Jesus is sinless. I am not. We have to see that. Jesus is sinless. I am not. Now, it's easy to say everybody errors, everybody makes mistakes, but our statements like that are kind of a way to look at the world around us and go, nobody's perfect, but I'm better than them. And, and, and we kind of want to see this God who grades on a scale. Did you like that when you were in school? When, when all of a sudden you're like, I got like a 65, please God, let this lady great on a scale. And then the one student in the class who got like a 98 and you wanted to kill that kid. Remember that? Like, nope. Because you, we want a God who just looks at us and goes, well, nobody's perfect. He's grading on a scale. So, and I know I'm a lot better than a lot of people. I, I loved when I was in my 30s and 40s, I loved playing church league basketball. Y'all, I, I had game. I, I'd go between my legs. I'd dribble. I was kind of a big guy. I could rain threes. I felt like Larry Bird, man. I just dropping dimes from all over the place. Um, I, I could score. I could rebound. I was, I was always big. and I, I didn't really play sinless basketball in the church court, just so you know. In fact, true story, I've gotten one technical foul in my life on the basketball court. And it was given to me in a church league basketball game by the referee who was my dad. <laughs> True story. But man, I get out there, I, I was scoring. We had a good, like this church I went to, we had a good team. We won several championships, man. I could thump my chest. Actually, man, I, I actually dropped 45 points. I scored 45 points at church league basketball game one time. That's like LeBron, right? It's, but the problem is if, if I pause to look around, the reason, like, I could do that in church league basketball because I was playing with a bunch of middle-aged white guys. So I'd, I'd go home feeling like good about myself. But imagine I took my, 
you know, even my 30-year-old self ball game where I was always a little round, you know, but I just used that to push people out of the way. And I actually got on the court and I was playing with LeBron and Steph Curry. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about at this point in time, all of you moms in here are like, who? Those are like the two best basketball players on planet Earth right now. They're you know, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird of this era. Okay, so imagine I stepped on the court with them. I would not feel quite so good about myself at that point in time, right? I'd be looking around going, I am awful. I'm terrible. This is what we do spiritually. We, we look around and we see, you know, the parts of our lives that are, that are okay. We, we find a way to compare ourselves and, 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 and we lower the bar so that I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. Like, I feel good about myself because I'm, I'm better than those people. I, I, I'm not as bad as the, I go to church. I'm religious. And the whole religious system, like religion is designed for you to say, I'm in, they're out, therefore I'm better. It's a way to, 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 to spiritually play church league basketball with your life. The Bible uses this word, it is called righteousness. It's a crazy word, righteousness. Right, righteousness. I, what does that mean? It means that I'm, I'm right. Well, I could be right based on any definition I want to make it, but that's not where the Bible's going with this word, both in the Old and New Testament. The, the, the Hebrew and the Greek word that we end up translating the word righteousness for in the Bible, the English word righteousness, comes from the idea of a reed. That's kind of weird. But see, back then they didn't have, they didn't have a Home Depot where you go get yourself a nice handy-dandy tape measure, right? And so when they were doing building projects like the one we're doing right now, or they were doing construction, or they were working on something, they would take reeds, these, these hard little plants that were just little, but they, were, they, were, they would get really rigid and they would cut them to certain lengths and that, that, that would become then the measuring tape to measure certain sorts of things. And then they would measure, they would lay the measuring reed, the righteous reed up against whatever they were cutting or whatever they were building or whatever piece they needed. And they would ask themselves, does this fit the measurement? Does it, does it measure up to the measurement here, okay? Uh, I experienced this for years when we used to take teenagers and do these trips called world changers. We would go work with teenagers. We would take kids, you know, middle school and high school students. We'd go to places all over America uh, and, and uh, we would literally spend a week in this town doing construction. And most of the work we did was putting up new siding, sometimes painting, but we did a lot of roofs. We would get up on a roof and we'd tear the old roof off and as we tore their old roof off, um, we would put a new roof on it. And we were always cutting, like we'd get all this lumber. We had to make cuts and all this sort of stuff. Uh, true story, we were doing a World Changers project one time. Uh, and Bob Lancaster was a crew chief. Bob was up here. If you don't know him, he's one of our elders. And he, he's a kind of a Mr. Fix-It Everything. And they were running late in the day on Friday. They had to get the project done. And they were putting on shingles. And so I pull up to this house, and Bob has this rope tied around his waist with a nail gun in his hand and a group of teenagers who had shingles, uh, not, not, not the disease, the like real thing you put on your roof, right? Uh, <laughs> had shingles and they were like putting them in place and Bob was literally swinging on the rope. They had tied it to something on the other side to latch it down so he wouldn't go flying. And he was running boom, 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 with this rope back and forth. And I got there, I was like, what are you doing? He's like, we gotta get it done. 
What am I going to do? But anyway, we, we would do these projects. We'd teach teenagers. We'd put teenagers on roofs, teach them how to build. And the first thing we had to teach them to do is how to make a cut. We had to teach them how to cut a board. Sounds simple, but there's two problems. One is that when you cut a board, if you get your fingers in, you will also lose fingers. And we didn't want to come home with teenagers going, look, mom, I built a house. You know, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> and the second thing is that we, we literally had to work with them to teach them how to cut a board because it, it, it Feels like it's simple, right? Feels like if you take your handy dandy tape measure and somebody hollers down and says, I need a two by four that is 64 and three quarter inches long, that you would take your tape measure and measure 64 and three quarter inches. You make a line, and, and if you really you know, want to do it right, you use this, this framing square, put your line on the board at 64 and three quarters, and then you just cut it and you're ready to go. It, it, it doesn't work. And here's why. Did, did you know that the blade of the saw is an eighth inch wide? If I measured the board to 64 and three quarters or whatever it was I said a minute ago, put the line on the board and I cut the line, I actually don't have a board that is righteous. The board's too short. It doesn't measure up. And here's why it matters. When you're building stuff like roofs, you have to have the board so that it put, creates tension. You, you, don't, you don't just drop it in and put screws in. It has, to, like it has to go in and stay there without the screws and put a little tension. That's what gives the whole structure strength. I learned that one day on a World Changers project. We were tearing this roof off this house. And, and so you, you have these, these boards that are making like an, your A-frame, like the, the, the shape of the the, the roof, but underneath it, you have these other boards that are underneath you that are like the ceiling underneath, like in the house. They're called ceiling joists. And me and this teenager, this teenager and I that, that were from the same church, we're standing on a ceiling joist as we're calling out different boards we need cut. Different, we're, we're, we're putting up this, this sheeting, this, you know, the big wood that goes on the deck that the shingles are going to go on top of. And I'm standing on this board. And what happened is, is the two of us were standing on this board. My wife is under my feet. Heidi is under my feet. The board gave way. It snapped. And I grabbed that board with my whole life. The one that's going this way, I grabbed it. Hurt my ribs when I did it. The other teenager kind of jumped when it happened. He's grabbed a board. I am now holding on to this board for dear life with my feet dangling. And my wife is looking up at me going, oh, dear God. And I'm like, sweetie, move. And she's frozen. Like, it, it was crazy. Well, what had happened? They had taken two boards that were too short, cut it in the middle, just screwed another board into it. We didn't know this. And it still wasn't long enough, and it just gave way. Almost killed me. Wasn't a righteous board. Now watch this. This is what the, when the Bible says righteousness, it's saying there is a, a measurement that reveals the character of God. What is it? Well, you go to the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. 613 laws in the Bible. No 613 laws in the Old Testament are telling us that we have a God who is morally perfect and he is calling people to his moral perfection. And we say, nobody's perfect, everybody sins. But that is not the measurement that the Bible is telling us we need to compare ourselves to. We need to pull out the tape measure and measure our lives compared to righteousness. And when I get there, I'm in trouble. And it's like the Old Testament is a job description for somebody who can enter the presence of God, 
fact, you see that, that language in the Psalms a lot. Who can ascend the hill? Who can come before God? And it starts listing all this stuff, and our response ought to be go, to go, ice cream is going to keep me from getting there, right? I've, I've, I'm not, this, this is not me. I'd like to be this, but I'm not. And, and it keeps saying, like, who's going to get there? And, and all of a sudden, the Old Testament starts saying, where's this person? When's he going to show up? And every great hero of the Old Testament shows up, and they're all awful. Read the story, actually, is the story. We, you know, we read the David and Goliath, a little bit of the story this morning. David is a moral failure. Nobody fits the resume until Jesus shows up. And the point of the Gospels is to take the righteousness, the 613 laws, the perfect glory and perfection of the God who created us, and to look at one man and, goes, and go, there he is. When I compare myself to some of you, I can feel like I'm okay. And sometimes you can compare yourself to me. Skinny people did it in the beginning of my sermon. You were feeling pretty good until I called you out for it, right? I can find a way to justify myself if I'm comparing myself this way. And here comes Jesus, and Jesus is going, but this is what righteous, see, he is righteous. He is perfect. He is sinless. I am not. And for some of us in this room, this is what is the barrier. What I want, I don't want a savior. I want a therapist. I want a coach who will help me along to the best version of myself. And we come to Jesus just saying, I know I'm, I'm a mess. I know I've failed. I know I have guilt but I just need you to help me along. And what we actually need is to come to the end of ourselves and say, without the perfection of Jesus, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I, I am an abject failure. I, you will not ever come to the point where you really believe the gospel until you see your own sin as it really is. But see, the second thing we see in, in the story is that Jesus is sinless. I don't have to be. I'm not. I don't have to be. A lot of you come in this room and you're carrying all this guilt because you're just like, I can't get out of my way. I've got this stuff in my past. I've got these major failures. I, I'm so full of guilt. I can't be that. Right. That's like, come to that conclusion and then run to Jesus. Jesus is perfect. And the whole point of his perfection is that he didn't have to be. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is only possible if Jesus is sinless. See, God's perfection required a glorious, perfect sacrifice. If Jesus sinned once, he would have had to, like his death would have been over his own sin, the righteous penalty for his own sin. His sinlessness allows him to stand in your place on the cross. And so he, he gives his life uh, for us. And so uh, what we see is the beauty of this in verse 24. It, it talks about the, the idea that uh, this happens so that we might Die to sin and live to, to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, we were straying like sheep, but, but we returned. How? Because the righteous one, the perfect sinless son of God, both lived and died in our place. See, he was perfectly obedient. And my being right with God is never going to be based on my obedience and goodness. It can only be based on his. Theologians talk about this right now. They call it representative obedience. That what's happening in the Bible is that Jesus is living the life I should have lived. We, like you may hear that Jesus died the death I should have died. 
But, but Jesus' perfect life, this is why Jesus couldn't be born and just die when he was like three. There has to be this record of a life that is righteous. And this is who Jesus is. And now he is living, fulfilling the law, living the life I said. He is perfectly righteous, sinless. And he is, his, his sinlessness is representative obedience. That when God looks at, if you're a believer in Jesus, when God looks at you, he is not looking at your obedience. He is seeing the obedience of Jesus for you. And so it, we talk about this, first of all, in his active obedience. This is him keeping all 613 laws, perfectly following God, perfectly fulfilling the will of the law, and therefore honoring the purpose of God, his Father, at every turn. He's in the garden. He cries out, Lord, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. The submission to the purpose of God, the will of the Father, and to, to obey at every step of the way. But there's also his, what, what, what we call his passive obedience, okay? And, and this is the fact that you and I deserve God's justice. You may not like that idea, but the perfect, holy, righteous God to maintain his character has to do what he said he would do. And Jesus submitted himself, willingly gave himself over to the consequences of your sin. His obedience was not just keeping the law, it was submitting himself willfully to take what you deserve in his life and in the cross. It's not just the cross, it happens all through the story. If you really read and get deep, every time Jesus heals and touches somebody, their sin and their disease and their is kind of transferred to Jesus because every time Jesus heals somebody, every time Jesus does something a little amazing, that the story of the Gospels keep telling us this puts him one step into deeper suffering, more people reject him, and he's taking one step closer to the cross, and he keeps giving himself to this story. His active obedience, he perfectly fulfilled the law. His passive obedience, he gave himself over to the consequences of your and my sin so that he could be our savior, our redeemer. And his sinless life accomplishes this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who, was, who knew no sin. Do you see it? So that we might become the righteousness of God. R.C. Sproul says it like this, at the heart of the gospel is a double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me. And in this twofold transaction, we see that God, who does not negotiate sin, who doesn't compromise his own integrity with our salvation, but rather punishes sin fully and really after it has been imputed to Jesus, retains his own righteousness. And so he is both just and the justifier, as the apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter three. So my sin goes to Jesus. His righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. Do you understand? If you are a believer in Jesus, the day you trusted in Christ, the day you gave your life to Christ, this is what happened, that your sin was fully absorbed in the cross of Christ. And his righteousness was fully imputed to your account. So that on one level, I can say, are you a sinner? Yes, I still sin. But as it comes to my position in Christ, I am righteous. 
You are righteous, like fully imputed. Like, yes, I have guilt, but I need to take that guilt to the throne and know that it's been paid for and that I have been flooded with the righteousness of Christ. He's righteous. I don't have to be. I don't have to be perfect because my standing before God is not based on my goodness. It is based on Jesus who was sinless in my place, right? Get it? There we go. And third, Jesus is sinless. I should, I should want to be. Once I've, t- like, once I've drunk this in, how can I keep running back to my old way of life and my old way of living and my old struggles? But see, this is, so many people in our culture, this is where they want to start. They want to start with Jesus as our example. They want to say, let's, let's follow the footsteps and follow the path of Jesus. Hear me lovingly. You do not need to follow Jesus as your example until you know him as your savior. It's a pit of destruction. If you make it your goal in life just to follow Jesus and his ethics, you'll become either a person in despair who realizes you cannot fulfill what Jesus did, or you'll become a religious snob who sees yourself as better than everybody else. You have to drink deeply. Of, of the well of grace before you can begin to see that grace wash through your soul and transform your life. And this is what cr- the Christian life is. It is us becoming who we already are. I'm righteous, so I start to live more righteously. But, but the way is not self-discipline, self-control. Do I need some of that? Yeah, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's in the Bible. But that's, the goal is not for me to say, I now believe in Jesus. Now, i got to go to boot camp so I can overcome my... No, that's not it. It is me seeing Christ. It is me savoring Jesus. It is me knowing him. Uh, in verse 21, he says that, that Jesus lived a sinless life, this life to be an example to us. It's a very interesting word in the original language because it's a picture of, of this, this person who has written out the alphabet and then puts a pencil in the hands of a little child who is now copying the letters. That's what, like, I behold Jesus. I just keep looking and staring into the life of Jesus, and he becomes this beautiful example. And I'm a little three-year-old who can't write anything, but I just follow the lines. And I start figuring out what it looks like to live like Christ. I'm never going to be Jesus. My life will never be righteous in terms of every action of mine. I am righteous before God. But boy, I can begin to follow that example because he has saved me. And, and this is where we realize that you, you do know that there is only one Christian life. There's just one. Do, do you know that? You are not to live the Christian life. Like, wait, what? What'd you just say, Mike? You are not to live the, the, the Christian life. That's not the goal for you. There's only one Christian life. Jesus lived it. And he is still living it. Jesus lived it when he walked on earth uh, 2,000 years ago. And for those of us who follow Jesus, as we behold Jesus, the life of Christ so fills our soul that he keeps living the Christian life in you and me. The goal is not behavior modification. It is beholding Jesus. It's fixing. That's why the author of Hebrews says we should run the race before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Listen, here's the truth. I didn't get this in my notes. This came to me yesterday, but write it down. The more we behold Jesus, the more we will be like Jesus. The more we behold, the more we fix our eyes and see him, 
the more the life of Christ will transform us into the glorious image. So that he's righteous, I'm not. He's righteous, I don't have to be. He has poured his righteousness, and he is righteous, and it will transform me from the inside out so that I begin to live the beautiful righteousness of Christ. This is not a minor doctrine. Jesus blows it once. There is no salvation. Aren't you thankful today that we are coming to a table of a Savior whose obedience was both active, he was perfect, and passive. He took our suffering and our sin and our guilt at the cross. And so, as we close today, our bands would come up on stage and we're going to sing and celebrate Jesus. We're going to sing to him and worship him for being the perfect son of God. As we sing and celebrate Jesus, we're going to pause and celebrate communion. This is our chance to come to the table and remember the sacrifice that was made. But don't forget that the cross is not just this moment. It is this whole story of he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I should have died in my place for my sin. And then he blew the doors off death, hell, and the grave forever three days later. And we come to the table renewing our commitment to behold Jesus, to come to him. Like the whole idea of communion is that we get to come taste and feel and experience grace, Right? So do that this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, the table is open for you. And if you're here today and you're like, I, this is weird, I don't get this, but you'd like to know more, I just would lo- love to invite you to have a conversation. We have a couple people who will be over here at the end of our service, and if you want to know more about what it means to follow and trust in Jesus, you want to just learn more about who Jesus is, or you just want to figure out what it, like, if you want to come to faith in Jesus today, we would love to pray with you. If you have any other needs that we can pray over, let us lift those up as well. Just come over here and pray, or I will be over here at the end of service. I would love to have a conversation with you. But don't leave here today not actually dealing with the righteous Christ. He's good. He's worth it. I'm going to pray, or actually I'm going to let Eric now lead us into our time of communion as we remember what Christ did for us. So Eric... Walk us through that.